1: plushcare.com slash weight loss last week the schools reopened and for parents and children all over the country sanity returned it was a necessary measure but has keeping kids out of the classroom come at a greater social cost than we realize
2: many pupils probably have sadly given up on schooling altogether
1: At one point during the pandemic, 750,000 children were absent from the virtual or physical classroom.
2: It's extremely hard to engage when you don't have that face to face time with teachers.
1: You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, The Lost Children How School Closures Hit the Most Vulnerable Kids. Hello. Hi. We haven't really met. So this is sort of a Hi.
2: Yeah, I know. I know. I've been listening to you for for a while now, but I haven't had the pleasure of doing one. Anymore.
1: That's Shingi Mararike.
2: And I'm a news reporter at the Sunday Times.
1: Shingi joined the paper back in 2018.
2: I don't think I'm your typical Sunday Times news reporter. I grew up in and still live in Newham, a place which is consistently ranked as one of the poorest places in England. It's also one of the most diverse local authorities in the country. So the backdrop is a melting pot of lots of different cultures and experiences. I went to the state school at the top of the road that I still live on now. I try and bring in those perspectives based on my upbringing and my background a fair bit when I'm reporting on stories.
1: In 2017, while still studying English at Warwick University, Shingy got one of his first articles published in the paper. He was reporting on the alarming rise in acid attacks taking place in schools in his home borough in East London. It started a Sunday Times campaign, which led to a change in the law a year later, banning under-18s from buying acid and carrying corrosive substances in public.
2: One of the first stories I brought in whilst I was still a university student was about children in the state school that my brother went to bringing acid to school in Lucozade bottles. And it horrified the news editor at the time, but it was something I felt like I had unique access to. A world in which, you know, it's slightly more complicated than good and evil.
1: Shingy had spoken to teenagers who said they carried acid around for self-defence and the use of weaponized substances was startlingly common.
2: There are people who do things because of poverty. There are people who age faster than they should. And there are difficult moral situations in, a, in Newham and other, other poor, extremely poor areas. And that was sort of my way in. That story was a calling card. And I've tried to continue to do quite a few stories along those lines since.
1: Are stories like that sort of your particular passion? And you know, t- tell me a bit about growing up there in Newham and, and the sort of things you were seeing.
2: I like lots of different kinds of stories. I've done bits on social mobility, religion, and even fashion. But it's funny how I always circle back to these tales once in a while. The school I went to, which is now... Hugely aspirational and ends up in the headlines for good things, for getting lots of kids from ethnic minority backgrounds into Oxbridge. But when I started there in 2006, I have like vivid recollections of a school life in which some people were deeply aspirational, but others would carry knives into school to protect themselves. While some students were drug dealers known as shotters, those were the people who would carry two phones around and sell cannabis to help support their mothers, to buy clothes. There were things that now, in hindsight, when I have conversations with friends, you turn around and you think, that was actually quite traumatic. I know students who were stabbed, who would come back after periods of of illness based on what had happened. I knew people who had been to prison.
1: That is an extraordinary backdrop that you bring to your journalism. Tell me a bit about the story that you've just been covering.
2: The reason that we had to take the decision to close schools was because of the impact of uh, schools on transmission yes. not on the safety exactly. of children Exactly, uh, and that's important to bear in
3: mind. I appreciate the, the frustration of, of teachers and, and parents uh, and obviously the frustration of pupils. I know exactly how difficult it is for them wanting to go to school and um, the stress and strain that this is placing on people.
2: I think it's universally recognized that the pandemic has been devastating for children. There have been a number of studies and reports about the fact that they've lost time to socialise a space to develop emotionally. And in some extreme cases, you know, school offers them a chance to seek refuge from a troubled family life. But there are also some children from backgrounds like my own and worse, who were already on the fringes of school life, who were struggling to engage with education before all this happened, uh, because they could see an easy life of riches and, and money. This story is about the pandemic's impact on them, their families, the fact that many pupils probably have sadly given up on schooling altogether, choosing to do whatever it takes to survive because of the economic damage that the pandemic has done, not to mention the sort of the struggles it has put their families through in other ways too.
1: Late last year, Shingy and two colleagues started to investigate why more and more kids were dropping out of school as the pandemic wore on.
2: Myself and Sean Griffiths, the education editor, alongside Emily Kent-Smith, another one of the reporters, were asked to look into what was happening to the school kids who were, just simply weren't going back. We had caught window of attendance figures falling. We wanted to know what was happening to the pupils.
1: The figures were striking. Last October, around one in ten pupils were not at school the previous autumn, before the pandemic, it was roughly one in 20. So, why had the number suddenly doubled?
2: I had found separately some anecdotal cases of children who had dropped out of school to sell drugs because their parents had been laid off, they essentially had to grow up faster and they felt like they had to become the breadwinner. This was something which tallied up with Sean's reporting and her conversations with head teachers and other students, whilst Emily Kent Smith looked at the broader issue from eating disorders to rising homelessness. And the story we formulated just ran through a number of these examples, whether it was Blackpool, London or Birmingham, in which pupils who were already on the fringes of education had suddenly dropped off the map and not returned to school after first lockdown. As we know, pupils were meant to have gone back to school, but there will be plenty who haven't.
1: Tell me about some of the people who you have been speaking to so far. My main
2: source on this story is uh, Matthew Norford, who is a youth worker from Manchester. He runs a scheme called uh, One Message, which is a combination of mentorship, running sessions with children and pupils.
1: We'll come back to Matthew, who was once a gang member himself. But first, Shingi managed to speak to two teenagers who are involved in running drugs
2: in Hume, South Manchester. An 18-year-old who has, he loosely calls it a gang. He prefers to refer to it as a crew, but he has a set of young children who run drugs for him. Beside him was another child. And I wanted to just ask, have the last few months been even worse? Have you seen more children, you know, trying to live lifestyles like yours?
1: To put it bluntly, had school closures caused by the pandemic led to more children getting involved with running drugs and the dangers of that lifestyle.
2: The uh, two young men, they told me that firstly, they'd seen a surge in children as young as 13 over the course of the first lockdown, approaching them and asking how to make money, which is in coded terms, how do we get in on what you're doing can we run cannabis and other substances for you to make could be 50 pound a day but it's something to bring back home wow I, i've heard those stories before but the fact that they're on they're on the increase was quite difficult to listen to they themselves say that the life that they actively lead and children who have run for them have been robbed others have been threatened with knives but It all comes back to the fact at home, their parents, many of them have been either laid off or placed on furlough and they don't have school to go to. So their two safety nets of, you know, secure parents and an education are gone. These young men, it's slightly complex because they don't actively encourage the children by the sounds of it. They warn them off the lifestyle and they warn them off the dangers of it. But at the same time, it seems that like there's a real appetite for people to do whatever it takes to, to try and survive.
1: And tell me a, b- a bit more about you know, how this plays out for the young men. You know, how does it sort of affect their lives? I'm, I'm guessing sort of in terms of school in particular. What's going on?
2: When we first moved into homeschooling, it sounds like in poorer areas, you are living in a house in which you might have hmm. one tablet or computer shared among siblings. And it's extremely hard to engage when you don't have that face-to-face time with teachers. So people who are already on the fringes of education have that, that cord, which is a meeting with a teacher who can sit them down and say, what you're doing isn't you know, the right path for life. That, that cord is snapped, it's gone. And going back when you are making, in some cases, a thousand pounds a week selling cannabis or bud as some of them call it, school is probably not as enticing a prospect.
1: For some, being out of school has drawn them into the murky world of drugs and gangs. For others, it's the multiple problems the pandemic has unleashed, with parents losing their jobs and families struggling, all locked down in a confined space. We'll have more in just a moment, but first, Get to the heart of the stories that matter every day with The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today and get one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Before the pandemic, Shingy met Matthew Norford, a charismatic 38-year-old who'd previously been in a gang. He now spends his time trying to steer children away from the type of life he once led. He's a remarkable character, and Shingy remembers their first encounter.
2: I came across him when I was doing some research on a story On County Lines, I remember picking up a story about a former gang member from Manchester who had been, among many other things, who had been exploiting when he was a gang member, I must add. One of his techniques was to groom parents, buy them a Sky subscription or some gifts or give them some cash so that he could get to their children. And I found that horrifying.
1: Some of the things Matthew did when he was part of a gang are shocking. But something had clearly changed.
2: I wanted to meet Matthew himself. And when we did meet, it was one of the most bizarre encounters I think I've had in my career so far. I went up to Manchester and we had a time arranged, but he was dealing with, as part of his scheme, one message which supports young people sort of on the fringes of gang life. He had been caught up in an incident in which there was a fight and he wasn't sure whether he was going to be able to meet me. I wait around Manchester for about five hours before I get a call from him and he says I'm parked outside of Manchester Piccadilly station. And I go over and I sat in his car and he talked me through his life story. And it's truly remarkable. So he had joined a gang at the age of around 15, uh, if not younger than that. He was running around carrying firearms, selling drugs in his local area of Rush Home and further than that. And he had done various stints in and out of prison. Despite being a promising basketball player, he threw that all away because he just saw himself as, you know, as a kingpin in his area. And it sounded like he was. He had been Mm. shot. He showed me the bullet wound in his leg. But for him, the reason he came out of that lifestyle around 27 was because his older brother, Gary, also a gang member, was shot and killed.
1: A Freedom of Information request by Sky News found police forces across the UK reporting an increase in under-18s being arrested for firearms offences over the last year, and that's despite lockdown. So how do you prevent children from falling into the clutches of gangs?
2: Matthew is quite unconventional in the sense that his approach to youth work is very much like I'll set up a -a five-a-side game and then the kids will sit down and talk to me afterwards.
3: I play football with him. And we go for food. As soon as we're opening up, we're going to go go karting and go paintballing, you know? And it's all coming out of my pocket. Ain't government funded. Ain't no one helping me. I just know how it feels to feel worthless as a young person and suicidal.
2: In sort of pre lockdown times, he would drive around Manchester and talk to local drug dealers, young people on the fringes of gangs on a level which they could understand.
1: But when the pandemic hit, Matthew, who mentors around 80 children, couldn't predict what might happen. When the schools were shut down
2: he mentioned that there are examples in which kids would see their parents struggling like never before because they're already at home
1: matthew told shingy about a 15 year old boy whose life he fears has changed forever
2: who was doing well in his school until the first lockdown he was an aspiring engineer with good grades
3: he, started, he was a good student, good student, and um, he's supposed to be finishing this year.
2: Mm-hmm. The um, catalyst for that boy.
3: Well, his um, dad lost his job, single parent.
2: Sitting in his kitchen and watching his father, who had been laid off from his job at the council, crying, shedding tears.
3: When your dad comes and says, I've lost my job, and you hear him crying as a 15-year-old kid. Mm. <laughs> How is he supposed to go to school? Because his dad was the one that looked after him.
2: Yeah. That boy yeah. already yeah. knew a few yeah. local drug dealers, but he hadn't dabbled per se. But seeing his father cry and the anxiety yeah. there drove him to begin seeking people out and asking if he could run for them.
3: Um, so he started selling weed. He was making a bit of money.
2: Using his charm, his, his cleverness, in a completely different way. Matthew worries he won't go back to school, even though he's in his GCSE year. You don't
3: know what the future holds. Because when it comes to exams, if they do have exams, he's not been studying because she's been going to school.
2: And he had so much to give.
1: Since the interview, Matthew told Shingy that he believes the 15-year-old boy has now gone back to school, but he's concerned that he's still selling cannabis.
2: He says that a lot of the children make these choices based on the fact that the pandemic has made a lot of the incentives seem even more or even richer rewards.
1: Is it the problem of being locked down at home in sort of quite often a small space with a family that's clearly going through a lot if people are losing their jobs and things are tough?
2: Absolutely. Speaking particularly to Matthew, but other frontline experts, some children relish the opportunity to get out and do just something, they're, whether they're in local parks or on their estates. They're out of the house. That confinement must surely be one of the, the driving factors here. Matthew seems to believe it will spread. There was a very poignant moment in our conversation when he turned around and said it could be people in nice areas next. Can I
3: might be on your street next. So if people just want to look, oh, I live in a nice area, it won't happen around here,
2: OK. Then if we look at the statistics, the job losses aren't just confined to people who are of a lower socioeconomic background, people with middle-class backgrounds, and above that are losing their jobs. So he surmises that there could be a spate of people deciding to do similar things beyond just areas of a kind of more more difficult socioeconomic background. But on the evidence I've seen, at the most obvious end of this story, it will be in poorer areas in which these things continue to happen. But it looks like further down the line as we move into the recession, we may see these things happening elsewhere.
1: And for Matthew, what did he say had most surprised him during this period?
2: Two things stood out, really. It's that among children he's been speaking to, there's a level of anxiety being experienced that he'd never really known before, not even himself. A lot
3: of these kids now will tell you they've got anxiety. Mm. I never knew about anxiety until I started paying bills. Until I was a grown man. I didn't know about anxiety at age twelve and thirty.
2: Yeah. He was hearing some really dark things. He, he heard one child say
3: Oliver said to me, Do you know how it feels to feel like you've got no soul, feel like you could even shoot your own friend. If you,
2: if you, you know, I feel like I've got no soul anymore. I'm struggling to cope. Wow. Another thing that stood out is just the horrors that some of these children are witnessing at home, whether it be domestic violence or being on the receiving end of violence in the home themselves.
3: You know, domestic violence has shot up. A lot of kids are angry because you know they've seen their dad knock their mum around more. Where there was at school, they didn't see that.
2: Yeah, yeah. Now they're
3: stuck in a house scene, and that kid openly would tell you, the the pe the paper will say this and that. Um, Our people assume this and that, but they don't know what goes on in in our households. They don't know what we see. Yeah, they're traumatised. They're
2: They're watching Um, their parents go through turmoil and the pandemic has confined them. It's confined them to having to see more than they did when they had the chance to go to school.
1: How is it affecting them? How is it affecting their mental health?
2: It seems like, or it sounds like, a ticking time bomb to him. Conversations he's had are are bleaker than ever. He believes there needs to almost be Great a form of, of government intervention to specifically deal with this issue. He, he says it goes beyond himself right now.
3: When the government strips you down and you're still waiting for your universal credit and you've lost your job, you've got to turn to that. What does that kid think
2: at 12.30? I think another problem here is that he's not getting as much access to seeing the kids. He's slightly dismayed that he can't drive over there and try and give the kid or the young person a place of refuge
1: and if this has got worse during lockdown because there has been no access to school no escape now that schools are reopening does matthew think the situation will get better
2: it will for those who were less far gone but he has an inkling that about 15 to 20 of the 80 kids or so he's working with now
3: who are definitely not going back who are definitely not going back because of their circumstances and i get it I don't agree with it, so I don't want people thinking, "Oh, he agrees." No, I get it, I understand it, because I was that kid making that choice.
2: It sounds like some kids could potentially be saved, and you will do everything you can to to
3: do that with your work. But others, no, it's not gonna. It's too late. Yeah, and that's what the ones I work with. What about the ones in London, mm-hmm. Birmingham, other cities, Liverpool, who have not got no one like me to in their life.
2: It's extremely difficult to process. But for others, he has hope. He thinks that schools reopening is the the best thing that could have happened for some people. And he will do his best to encourage them to stay in the system. And interestingly enough, the two young men who I spoke to from Manchester, the last couple of things they said were that if you are in school, stay in school.
1: Those 15 to 20, he talked about who he said, too far gone, which is... A really scary thought. If it hadn't been for the pandemic, if they'd carried on at school, would they have been saved effectively?
2: Matthew believes, you know, it would have saved those, those who are now completely disengaged. And it's a really frightening prospect to know that many of them are now on a road that is... <laughs> it doesn't lead to, to many good things, to say the least.
1: I mean, it's... Really alarming because we've all looked at the coronavirus figures. We've looked at the fear of the virus spreading and the need to to lock down, to shut down schools, to stop that. Do you think maybe we've slightly underestimated some of the social costs of doing that, though?
2: There have been copious reports and, and looks into the impact of the pandemic on children. What is more important now is what happens with the support for them afterwards in recent years the government has put money towards 35 million pound violence reduction units about 200 million to a youth endowment fund over 10 years and around 500 million over five years to a youth investment fund so all of these things are either aimed at cutting violence directly or they're aimed at giving children places to go and things to do The commitments to those must be even stronger, despite what the pandemic has done to the economy, because it's a real public health priority and it's a commitment to the future.
1: Having been born and raised where you were and having seen, you know, a lot of really difficult things in your own school, how has it affected you covering this story?
2: I wouldn't say it was difficult, but it was a lot to process just thinking backwards. A lot of it brought back some memories. I I will emphasise the point that the school I go to now is, is, you know, arguably one of the best state schools in the country. But Mm. the common theme running through my reporting on this, not just now, but in the last couple of years, is that poverty makes people do things that they probably wouldn't. It just took me back to, you know, conversations I had in school or just things we had seen happening.
1: Was there sort of a sense of you know, even at a tough school, even sort of in tough circumstances, you never know what's happening at home, but sort of so many little things can affect your life chances. You can either end up as a, a Sunday Times reporter, or you know, you can end up like like some of those 15 to 20 who just sort of sound like they've fallen out of the system completely.
2: Absolutely. You realise in, in some of these schools, in some of these areas, you're on a knife edge. You could be the person who sat in front of you, also from a single parent home, who then goes on to runner-county lines, jug gang, or you could be someone who is well-parented enough and probably too goofy to be recruited anyway, but you could be that person and you continue down a path in which you could end up a journalist in the Sunday Times newsroom having these conversations. Those stark differences, those those little, those. in some ways they're stark differences like where we've ended up, but in some ways it is just a razor thin margin and a set of chance meetings and choices that separate kids. Those are going to become even more apparent. There are life chances, which are important, but there are also life choices. And sometimes you might be outside the school gate at the time in which, you know, someone comes over, gives you the tap on the shoulder and says, this is how to make money. If you hold this for me, whether it's cannabis or something else, if you move this for me, you'll be all right. I could have just been the person who missed that conversation. And since then, the rest is history.
1: You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, Shingi Mararike, a reporter at The Sunday Times. You can read more of Shingi's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print on Sundays. The producer was Will Rowe. The executive producer is Poppy Damon. And sound design was by Carla Patella. If there's a story that you'd like us to look into, any ideas for a future episode, or if you have any thoughts on what you've just heard, then please do send us an email to times at thetimes.co.uk. See you tomorrow.
3: Subscribe today and get one month free at thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times.
0: Hold up.